Hello and welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Handel. Our theme for the next four podcasts will be the harsh sentencing given to juveniles in this country when they commit a serious crime. When I say harsh, I am talking about life without parole. That is exactly what it says. Life, no chance of getting out on parole. So how many children are serving juvenile life without parole? About 1465, about 1,465. That's according to the sentencing project. There were 2,500. The Supreme Court has given these kids a second chance. We will be speaking to someone in two weeks who was instrumental in changing the laws governing, governing the kind of sentences given to young people under the age of 18. But today we are so pleased to have Abdullah Latif, a man who was incarcerated at the age of 17, received life without parole, spent 31 years in prison and has been out for four years. He is from the state of Pennsylvania and I am so happy to welcome him to the podcast. Welcome. Indeed, thank you, uh, Harriet, indeed it is a pleasure and an honor to uh, join you and your listeners in discussing what is obviously um, a phenomenon that is both a scarlet letter and a, and a shame, quite frankly, uh, that the United States is the only country that continues to sentence children to life without possibility of parole. That is, that is absolutely correct. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin at the beginning, and I want to know if you share with our listeners when and where does your story begin? Absolutely. Thank you. So when and where my story begins, it has to, be, it has to begin with my parents who were both young relatively uh, young when they had children. And after migrating from Philadelphia to Montgomery County, the adjacent county just southwest of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, they were able to purchase a ranch home. And my father worked as a, as he was a, a veteran but also worked as an entrepreneur, owned his own uh, business and a few uh, rental properties. My mother was a full-time nurse. And so essentially I and my siblings grew up in what was uh, formerly called a latchkey uh, mm -hmm. environment where my, where my parents were always at work and as uh, my siblings and I had to mostly fend for ourselves. My parents were excellent providers materially. However, in terms of time, nurturement, and uh, even the affection and love, um, they were not as adept at that. So as I matured uh, as, a, as a child, my earliest memories was 
that of actually being attached to my mother at the hip when she would attend uh, Bible studies and church services. And I was looked upon as the prodigal son, as if that would be my pathway. And I remember clearly the day that the my Bible study teacher um, relocated and it had a devastating impact on me. And I just kind of like gravitated away from the church. I guess I had uh, separation anxieties issues um, that was never really addressed. So I'll fast forward to at 15 years, excuse me, 14 years of age had a bicycling accident and I flipped over the handlebars and landed on my face mm. and severed my upper lip. I had reconstructive plastic surgery, which was a botched and the swelling uh, just wouldn't subside. It, the swelling and scar tissue uh, took actually years to get corrected. But while that was transpiring, I used to be teased and bullied in school. And so I would be called anteater, platypus, bubble lip, aardvark, just all types of demeaning uh, names because of my deformity. And no teacher, no bus driver were, would intervene to stop it. And I'll often just sit on the bus or in the back of the class and cry. And it was one fateful day where an individual was teasing me on this, said that next time you call me a name, I'm going to punch you in your mouth. And he did so, and I punched him in the mouth. Was escorted to the principal's office. And because my shy and bashful nature I couldn't engage, I couldn't articulate why I did what I did. And I just said, ask him. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I know, the principal is coming to me and saying that you can't put your hands on people um, for calling you names and we have to suspend you. And as I was suspended from school, I was supposed to be on punishment. Uh, but as a precocious child would do when the parents are at work, I would do my chores and then go outdoors. And in doing so, I would happen upon a group of significantly older uh, adults, as it were, 18, 19, 20 years old, already finished school. And we would smoke both cigarettes and reefer. It was my first time uh, smoking both and drink beer and play cards and listen to music. And at first I would use those things as a prop because I could use it to hide my deformity. Uh, smoking wasn't about the joy of smoking. It was about the ability to use it as a prop to hide my deformity. And the drinking wasn't about drinking. It was about feeling comfortable in, in my own skin. And I noticed that as these uh, adults, some of whom were of ill repute, but none of them would tease me for my deformity. And so they quickly became my new peers, my new associates. And so I no longer wanted to go to school. 
um, where I knew I would be teased and bullied. And I always wanted to be in the company of my newfound friends. And so on the night of July 9th, 1986, one of these friends who was a 21 year old adult who was actually homeless came to my residence seeking my assistance to commit a snatch and run robbery. I agreed to participate. My role was to go to what came to be a residential uh, home. I was to knock on the back door after the individual had snuck inside. And when the elderly gentleman came to the door to enter the door, he would grab him from behind. I would rifle through the pockets, take the belongings, and we would flee. Well, it was executed as planned, except during the flea, he would throw the individual to the ground. He suffered a fractured femur as a result, was taken to the hospital uh, immediately thereafter, uh, treated and released, returned the following day. They decided to perform an operation to correct what, what they found to be as a, a fractured hip. Complications ensued, uh, and he died of a heart attack 18 days later. The adult was charged uh, with first, second, third degree murder, robbery, burglary, criminal trespass, and conspiracy. And I, too, was charged with a laundry list of charges as an adult. I was subsequently convicted and sentenced to a mandatory term of life without possibility of parole uh, with the expectation that I would die in prison. Uh, life means life in prison or in Pennsylvania. And so the expectation was that I would die in prison up until uh, a, a series of United States Supreme Court cases that began in uh, 2012, culminating in a decision in Miller versus, uh, excuse me, Alabama versus Montgomery uh, that made like my, my sentence uh, impermissible, uh, constitutionally um, unconstitutional, and I was subsequently resentenced and paroled and ultimately released in October 10th of 2017. That is quite a story. Now, why was your sentence more harsh than your co-defendant? So my co-defendant actually was sentenced as a part of a plea bargain oh. uh, to seven and a half to seven and a half to 20, I believe. Mm. And he served eight years after which he was paroled. I was offered a similar uh, plea offer, which would have been actually uh, two and a half to five years for involuntary manslaughter. Initially, I accepted the plea. When my parents found out about the plea, they prohibited me from accepting it. Oh. Not because of evading responsibility, but thinking that I wasn't responsible for the death in the sense that I wasn't responsible for throwing an individual to the ground right. and the fact that he died from a heart attack uh, 18 days later, they just couldn't make the connection. 
to murder or homicide. And no one, not the uh, defense attorney, uh, public defender, judge, or prosecutor informed myself or my parents that I actually faced a mandatory life sentence if found guilty. Um, we didn't find that out until the judge, the day that that judge pronounced guilt uh, in the courtroom. And that's the first time that we learned that that sentence carried a mandatory life without possibility of parole sentence. Just seems so unfair that your co-defendant served so little time compared to what you served and you were underage. It just Indeed. one of the many, uh, I don't know what to call it, puzzlements of the, of the justice system. Uh, and, and is that justice, right? Indeed. Not, not really, not really. So you were a child, as the law sees you, um, with adults in prison. How, how in the world did you cope with that kind of life? And, and how do you cope with life um, in an adult prison? Hmm. Indeed, it is it's extremely extremely difficult uh, to cope. And, and as, as I say that, I also have to acknowledge that in some respects, the jury is still out, right? The psychological damage that prison does, I don't think that that is eliminated just because you are fortunate enough to walk out of the prison gates. And so we can delve into that a, a little bit more. But before that, I would like to just set up the context for, for, for what I mean. And as, as many might know, right, prison is a place of restriction. It's a place of punishment. And in some, some sense, it's a, it can be a place of torture, both mental, psychological, and in certain institutions that, that manifest in physical torture, whether that's coming from correctional officers or other imprisoned people, just the sheer violence. And I saw and experienced that uh, firsthand. And so when we talk about and think about prison and we think about like just human beings and how we interact with the world, right? We interact through the, with the world through our, through our senses. We experience the world through our, our senses, our five senses, the sense of hearing, touch, taste, smell, sight. And prison by its very nature is designed to severely curtail or restrict those senses. So you don't have the ability to see the beautiful things in life. You see the same jewelry colors, the same uniforms, the same dull colors. You don't even get to experience the full panoply, the kaleidoscope of colors. You hear shrill, harsh sounds, whistles, screams, shouts, gate slamming shut hardly ever a, a, a time of silence. Mm -hmm. 
that assaults your mind, your spirit. You don't hear the beautiful melody. You don't hear the things that can cause you to relax and enjoy an experience. And likewise with the sense of taste, right? Everyone talks about prison food as being the worst, (laughs) as if it shouldn't even qualify as food. And that's a reality to such an extent that your taste buds start to deaden. Likewise with your sense of touch, never being able to really embrace your loved ones, whether it's a child, a sibling, a girlfriend, a significant other, never having that that intimacy of touch. So when we talk about what gives you life is how you experience through your, your senses. And prison is a place of deprivation. It deprives you from experiencing the world in a meaningful way through those senses. And so what happens is those senses actually start to die off. They start to atrophy. Because they're not being used. Because they're not being used. And so while we're talking about life and serving life, it's really akin to death. Because you're, you're, you're feeling yourself, you're watching yourself wither away day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. And so it really is akin to dying in slow motion. And, and so when you understand the degree of hopelessness and despair, coupled with all of the violence, the deliberate indifference to your humanity, the conditions of confinement, living in squalor, always constantly under surveillance, thought about and talked about in the most demeaning ways, whether it's directly or indirectly through the way people have perceptions about people who are incarcerated. It's difficult to find self-esteem, to find self-value under such circumstances where your humanity is constantly under assault. And so when you talk about how you survive, the magnitude of what is taking place for the length of time that is taking place, I firmly believe that there is a psychological damage that is that is done to incarcerated people. There's an emotional damage that is done that we have yet to grapple with. I think some of us hide it well, some of us find ways to cope, but nonetheless, that, that damage I think is, is still there um, and, and, and certainly requires some form of, of address, redress, mitigation, therapy, whatever, whatever that is for uh, each individual. But I think that the, it's, it's important to like really understand the detriment of long-term incarceration in the, in, in the carceral experience. Um, certainly some aspects of it have, have gotten better over the years and decades, but 
fundamentally captivity is captivity, imprisonment is imprisonment, and the detriment can't be undone by superficial policies that at, at, at its core fail to, fail to recognize the full human being. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a work in progress trying to recover from that. And, and we're talking about coping. Um, can you be specific as to what you leaned on to help you get mm -hmm. through? There must have been something. Many, many people I've spoken to, it's their faith. Indeed. Uh, others, it's education. What, what was it in your case? Indeed. So, so certainly, certainly, uh, it's not all gloom and doom. There, there are phenomenal relationships that are developed in prison, uh, usually within prison, uh, other imprisoned uh, folks, but also sometimes uh, connection with the outside world uh, that can be um, rejuvenating and sustaining in some ways. Um, there's also faith, which takes uh, plays a large role. Um, both because a lot of individuals who I've encountered and myself is no exception are particularly contrite and full of remorse and, and, and need of redemption and find their way, gravitate their way towards spirituality. That was for something for me, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, part of my upbringing was being affiliated with the church. So for me, it was kind of like, uh, getting back to what what instinctively I, I was uh, raised as in, in my in my childhood, uh, reverting to uh, those morals and manners and principles that that came from my faith. But there's also opportunity for education, and as me working and as a paralegal, not only understanding. The, what I would term as the injustice in my own case, but also seeing patterns as it shows up in other people's play, uh, cases as well. And it doesn't mean that everybody obviously in there is innocent, but there's an excessiveness to charging and punishment that exists within our, our uh, legal system that also produces injustice. Uh, and so those excesses, whether it's uh, excesses in, in charging or excesses in, in, in terms of uh, the amount of time that, that people are, are given, or whether it's other constitutional rights that are violated in the process, what that intimately brings to focus is just how broken our system actually is. And so you begin to take purpose or find purpose and one, trying to help people who are in that situation, but also doing the advocacy piece because you don't really understand how broken the system is until you're impacted by it. And so that you, you take on the onus of trying to ring the bells, sound the alarm, like there's something seriously wrong here. Um, and those voices from the inside, you, you, you try to engage in, uh, being advocates for yourself and for others and, and trying to educate uh, the public about what takes place um, from, from the inside. Uh, so, so you can find purpose and meaning 
uh, to agree in, in those type of engagements. And I think for a while they sustained me. But I also have to tell you quite frankly that I've had very, very close and intimate friends who I serve significant time with, one of whom I, I just remember clearly the last conversation we had, he asked me kind of rhetorically, why do I keep doing this to myself? Why do I keep doing this to myself? And this was the fifth time that he was denied commutation. And a few days later, he claimed his own life. And his statement was, when does it come to an end? At, at what point does it come to an end? And he had already served 41 years um, at, at, at that point. And, and so having friends who I, who I know who have um, didn't survive prison, I know what it is to have that degree of hopelessness and despair and to begin to question why you continue to wake up every day to live that type of existence, even with all of the purpose and meaning that you try to find in life. Now, I, I hate to interrupt you, but we are out of time, but I know you said you would come back and talk to us again, and there's so much more I wanna ask you and for you to share. So uh, we look forward to seeing you next time on Pursuing Justice, and I'm so pleased you were here today. Thank you so much. And thank you so very much for having me, and I look forward to uh, engaging in the future. So thank, thank you. you again. Thank you.